Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us this afternoon on this lovely late fall day. We're so happy to have with us today, um, the Organization of Nature Evolutionaries is happy to have with us today, Lauren Valley, who's one of our Vision Council members. And Lauren has been um, an activist for uh, pretty much her whole adult life, and she's also a healer and a community herbalist. and. She's dedicated to bringing the healing powers of plant medicine and nature to her Cape Cod community. So she's the founder of Kinship Herbal and Holistic Healing. And prior to this, founding this company, she's worked in ecological engineering and building ecological wastewater and water remediation systems around the world. You may, some of you may know of John Todd, who's quite famous with this, and Lauren worked with John Todd for, for several years. She received her BA from Columbia University, and during her college years and early 20s, she worked as an environmental activist focusing on issues of environmental studies, fossil fuel consumption, and natural resource depletion. She's also lived and worked on two organic farms and has a long-standing interest in permaculture and whole system design. She's deeply committed to a mission of visioning and creating a healthy future for all through reconnecting to the earth and our biological heritage. She currently lives on her homestead with her husband, where they raise chickens and grow all kinds of beautiful food and lovely medicinal herbs. Um, I've been to Lauren's place before, and it's just one of those places where you, you step onto her property, which is kind of in a you know, semi-suburban area, but you step onto her property and you're just in the midst of this incredibly beautiful sanctuary of beautiful food and, you know, chickens running around. And so um, so I'm very, very happy to have Lauren with us today because she's just a wealth of information and incredible experience in her life. So she's going to talk to us about the source and environmental activism. And so that's kind of an interesting title. It's like, how do we bring in source energy to the whole environmental activism movement? And how do we, you know, engage with, with these questions about being an activist and, and taking a stand with and for the earth? And, what, you know, what's the history of all this? Where have, we, where have we come from? And where are we going? How do we, how do we create a future of environmental activism that works directly with earth's consciousness? So we... So we actually are paying attention to how the earth and nature is informing us. So I am so happy. So Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. And could you please just introduce yourself and kind of tell us where you came from, how you got into this, and where you're headed? Yeah, thanks so much, Pam. You can hear me? Yes, sir. can hear you. Okay, yes. great. <laughs> yes, great. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so... As you, you told a lot of my basic story already, and what we're going to focus on in this call today is really environmental activism um, and how that translates into or how we really work with the earth um, and, as we, as, and what does it even mean to be an activist and to be an, an earth, um, a defender of the earth, which is an old term. Um, so when I was in college in New York City, a freshman in college, I was walking down the street um, and this very cute boy walked up to me and he said, hey, do you care about whales? I was like, what? Of course I care about whales. I've grown up in the ocean and always like to listen to whale songs. And so he said, um, so I said, of course. And it turns out that he was a canvasser for Greenpeace, um, which I had never heard of. And he started talking to me 
about Greenpeace, which is an environmental organization, and, and their mission, and asked me if I wanted to be a member um, and support the work. So I said sure and signed up to make a donation. And then just a couple weeks later, I got this phone call from Greenpeace because it turns out that um, there was a board member at Columbia who was also uh, worked for that for uh, that company Apple, and Greenpeace was working on this campaign called Green My Apple, which was um, really asking Apple to take the toxics out of their manufacturing process so that down the line, when these computers are recycled, they weren't poisoning children in India um, and the whole story of electronics recycling. So Greenpeace got in touch with me to ask if I could help run this campaign on my campus. And I really had no idea what this was about, but I was full of adventure. And I said, sure. Um, so I started working with them. And a little bit after that, I got a phone call saying, you know, if you want to come to this event, you should dress up in all black um, and come down to Columbus Circle, to the Apple Store. And we're having a, a demonstration, which I didn't even really know what that was. So I got dressed in black, and it was nighttime. And I went down to the Apple Store, and there was probably 100 people there just very peacefully standing um, around that cube that is there. And uh, Greenpeace then shone a green spotlight onto the Apple Store and onto the cube. So they literally greened the apple. Um, and very peacefully, nothing happened. You know, There was no confrontation. But they did have a lot of media there. And they really turned it into a media event. So that was my first experience of um, what it meant to take my body and go to a place um, and to engage in this in this um, what, what we call nonviolent direct action, um, and to really take my first steps as an activist. And then through college, through the rest of that year, I ended up um, work, continuing to work on that campaign and marching up to the office of the Board of Trustees and delivering thousands of petitions and creating a big stir, and got very interested in this whole concept of how do we, how do we take a stand? How do we speak? for the earth, and how do we ask for change? So that was really the beginning of my career as an activist, which then turned into really five years of working for various organizations and really traveling the world, ultimately, um, to, make, uh, to work on campaigns and, and to train people in how to use their bodies to go to places of, of conflict or to go to the place where um, the campaign was being, where it was happening, whether that was a forest, um, whether that was an old growth swamp that was being cut down. Um, I spent time in, in China during the Olympics um, working with students for free Tibet to call attention to the struggles of the Tibetan people. So it became a really big chapter in my life. Um, and something that I felt really powerful, passionate about and still do. And I'll tell the story a little bit later um, about how that evolved and changed and um, a trauma that I experienced that kind of changed my why I'm not a professional activist anymore. Um, but that's really the, my origin story and um, of how I got into this work. And I spent um, probably went to prison six or seven times. I can't remember exactly, but 
ended up really getting my hands dirty and, and did a lot of work both in your, a lot with an affinity group in New York City, um, working a lot on fossil fuel consumption and financing, but then again, like I said, really all over the place. So have a lot of great stories. But what I want to get into today is to talk about um, the history of nonviolent direct action and environmental activism and really talk about what are the principles of this work and then um, and also the concept of ahimsa, which is Gandhi's term for, for nonviolence, and then eventually get into how do we how do we take this history, how do we take this work and really translate translate it into working with nature consciousness, which is what the organization of nature evolutionaries is really working on and which is really where my life is grounded now and kind of how I've come around full circle. So um, yeah, so first let's just talk about the um, what Martin Luther King laid out as the principles of nonviolence, this term. So as we all know, hopefully, um, the civil rights movement in the 1960s really brought this concept of nonviolence and civil disobedience to the United States and had a very, very powerful effect in changing history. And so I want to really get into what is what is that based on, um, and how did that how did that work? So Martin Luther King laid out these six principles of nonviolence, um, and he says first that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. So that's I think really the idea of this being a way of life. I'm going to translate all of this into kind of our our big conversation, but nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. Number two, nonviolence seeks to win friendships and understanding. Number three, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Number four, nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. We're definitely going to talk about that idea of suffering and my own experience of suffering and how that flooded me deeper. Um, and number five, nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. And that is so central really to one's work, to all of our work in making change, choosing love. And number six, that nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. And that, it's, to me, is very important, this belief um, that ultimately justice will prevail and that there is hope. And we'll end our conversation talking about hope because I think that's so important in this time. So, um, so Martin Luther King really brought this, uh, these principles to the civil rights movement. The activists um, that, that really made that work happen, really, they were trained um, extensively in how to not respond to violence. So we've all seen pictures and video footage of um, civil rights activists being beaten, and they were very passive. They took the violence, and they did not return violence with violence. So it's that whole idea of turning to the, in another direction. So the human response and the, the response through history has been meet violence with violence. And so what happens in that moment when you don't meet violence with violence, when you are being beaten and you sit down? Um, and that was so, the images of that work and that philosophy and action really is what, what made the civil rights movement so successful. Um, granted, 
we're still, in my opinion, in the middle of the civil rights movement. The work is certainly not finished, but there was a lot that happened during that time. So, um, so Martin Luther King was actually getting a lot of his philosophy from Gandhi, uh, who was a civil rights activist in India and really broke the British colonial rule over the Indian citizens. And so Gandhi was very rooted in Hindu philosophy. And he um, actually started an ashram, which is a spiritual community. And so he lived a very ascetic life. And he was a vegetarian. He practiced abstinence. Um, he, said he prayed. He kept his body clean. And so he really um, was very adamant that in order to be an activist, in order to make change in the world, he had to be clean in his body and spirit and to be grounded in spiritual principles, um, which I think is very important and interesting. And so he had used this term called ahimsa, which, is a san which comes from Sanskrit. And um, so ahimsa, you could simply translate to nonviolence, but it kind of more positively translates into um, love in action. And if you can even look more closely at the Sanskrit etymology, and you could translate ahimsa as the force unleashed when the desire to harm is eradicated. I'm going to say that again. The force unleashed when the desire to harm is eradicated. And that's so powerful. We're talking about a force here. Um, we're not talking about a passivity, um, but we're talking about the positive action that comes when we have a true deep desire to stop violence. And so Gandhi really addressed violence on the most personal level, violence towards the self, um, violence towards animals as he was a vegetarian, and then kind of took that up the ladder to, to, to the incredible movements that he led and, again, was successful. So um, I think as we talk and as we get into this conversation about the earth and um, her desires and being a collaborator with the earth and our environmental activism, this whole idea of, um, of not causing harm and is just so central. Um, so, and that was what really compelled me and that I found to be so exhilarating and exciting as I was, um, you know, parading around and uh, or organizing demonstrations and different kinds of actions, which is what we call, we call them nonviolent direct actions, was just the power in um, confronting power or confronting a company or confronting a position of authority and but not responding with violence. Speaking but not um, but doing it in a peaceful way. So um, I would do things like uh, I worked with Earth First down in Florida. Earth First is an environmental group and Earth First was working to stop the destruction of this um, old growth swamp uh, and from this Florida Power and Light was was slowly destroying this swamp with their with their um, tailing pond from their power plant. And they were denying that this was happening and they weren't letting anyone into the swamp and they closed it to the public. And so what Earth First did 
was we simply went and we camped out at the entrance to the swamp, which is very deep in the woods, um, and just simply held space there and um, stood there or slept there and cooked there, but really um, just went to be with the land. And that was technically illegal. Um, but so it was not, but it was just this act of putting our bodies at the place of destruction and really being with with that place and being with the earth. So, um, and that's really what, how the environmental movement has taken Martin Luther King's work and Gandhi's work of this work of nonviolence and, and adopted it into this earth-based activism. So, um, Julia Butterfly Hill, who you may have heard of, um, was an activist in the 70s, actually a little bit later, she was born in the 70s, and she was really upset by the destruction that was happening um, in Humboldt County to the redwoods that were being cut down. And so she went and lived in a redwood tree on a, platwor- on a platform for 738 days. I think that's over two years, so just about two years. She just lived in this tree, which was technically illegal, and the logging company fought her, um, you know, every step of the way. And um, ultimately, they, they did not cut down the tree. Um, but she just put her body in the tree to be with the tree. And that was her act of, of resistance and her act of, and how she took, a state, made a t- uh, t- took action, made a statement. Um, and a lot of other people in the 60s and 70s were really employing these tactics. So people would create blockades with their bodies. You know, they would link themselves. They maybe even would take PVC piping and lock their arms inside of the piping together. And then they would just stand stand across the road where there was going to be a, a logging truck that was going to go in and cut down a forest. And so they were putting themselves right in the middle of the road. Um, but they weren't hogging, harming the truck. They weren't, um, they weren't doing anything to, to harm it in any way. So, um, and there's also, I have lots of friends that have, have hung from bridges. Um, they're climbers, so they put on a bunch of climbing gear. And if there's a, a ship that's coming into a harbor that is coming to collect tar sands oil, or, or they will literally lower themselves down um, and dangle right in, in front of the ship so the ship cannot pass without hurting them. And then when the ship that they want to let in comes in, they just climb back up their rope. So um, that's really kind of how uh, nonviolent direct action has has been used to work with the earth. Um, and So Lauren, I know so, that you, um, this is this is really great to, to hear all this and, and some of this, you know, I've I've known about, but um, it's it's good to just like put it. I loved you telling us about what the ahimsa means that that term from Gandhi. So thank you so much for that. And I know that you have, you know, you've put your body on the line too, and um, you've had some actually kind of harrowing experiences. So it'd be great if you'd be willing to tell us about that. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that. So um, I had a very defining experience as an activist. And um, when I was in, I was, I was working with moveon.org. 
and I was sent down to Kentucky to work a bit. It was just when Citizens United um, was passed, which allows unlimited corporate spending in the election cycle. And um, I was campaigning. I was basically running this this project, this video project, where we were um, shooting videos in satire to say that the candidates that had accepted all this corporate money were actually, you know, a part of the corporation. So um, I had been working in Kentucky for several weeks and w uh, working with, uh, with Rand Paul, who's a Republican who was elected that year, and calling attention to all the money he had gotten and was at a um, debate. And there was a rally before the debate, right before the election, and I was assaulted by his campaign team, actually. Um, and it was because this was a very big election, I was, it was caught on video. So there was lots of news media and I was interviewed and there was some kind of questions about whether I had been trying to harm Rand Paul. Um, and I was very badly injured and but did not quite know it at the time. I had a, a, quite a serious neck injury. So, um, so I became very, so I, this all unfolded, I was on the news, my body became kind of the battleground that was happening, or the, the, the ground for this battle that was happening between the left and the right, and um, you know, people said that I was a terrorist, some people said I was a hero, and there was this clip was pay, played over and over again of my head getting slammed into the concrete and, um, by, this, by this man. So this trauma, so you know, up until this time, I had been working in this movement of of nonviolence, um, but then this trauma completely reset my life. I was first of all very injured, so I, I went to live in this farmhouse in Pennsylvania with my husband, um, left everything behind, I just went to live in the woods, and felt very um, as is you know tends to happen with a bad neck injury and, and concussion was very disconnected disassociated from my body in a lot of pain um, and got very depressed and really started to examine and understand even though I had been doing all of this work to defend the earth and it was very exciting um, that there was this inherent energy of um, competition or um, there was a lot of what was driving me was a sense of defiance and anger at the destruction that was happening in, in the earth and this sense that um, of wanting to win, wanting to win these campaigns and wanting to shame and humiliate the opponent um, so that they could see what they were doing. And so I spent this winter after, my, after that event being very injured and being very lost and being there and thinking so deeply about what is this energy that is, had driven me. And I was in the middle of the woods and I spent a lot of time outside with the trees. And it was that time of the year when the veil is thin. Um, and I already felt that the veil was very thin because I was so disconnected and injured. felt that the spirits were close. And that was really when this, the trees started talking to me. And I, I really, I was suicidal that winter. I just I couldn't really see how my life was going to continue. 
And I think a lot of that was a brain injury that I didn't realize at the time and wasn't being treated. Um, but I really didn't know where to go next. And I, this community that I had built, this work that I had built for years felt very foreign. And that vibration of, of anger and of competition and of, of, of winning just started to, just, it didn't work for me anymore. And I had this moment, um, kind of just as the spring was breaking, and I was at the, in the depths of my depression, and I was on this big piece of land in Pennsylvania, and I started just running through the woods and um, calling out, I'm ready to go. I'm done. I'm done here. I, there's nothing left for me to do. And I just was so convinced that if I just said that, that I would get picked up and carried away and that I wouldn't have to keep living on the earth. And I kept running and running, probably almost a mile. And I, then I tumbled down this hillside, this hillside full of hemlocks. And I tumbled into this stream. It was probably early April. And I just went right into this cold water. And the sun was shining. And as I came up out of this water, I felt this incredible rebirth and this incredible moment of healing from the earth and from the trees. And I was reborn into myself and into my life and became um, really deeply, that was the moment when I really started to connect with the earth and realized that I needed a new approach, that I didn't want to live. As much as, I, as much as I cared about the earth, I didn't want to live in the science. Um, so well, Lauren, this is a very powerful story. Thank you so much for being willing to share it. And, and I think that, you know, uh, this story that you're sharing is this was a big turning point, it sounds like, and that this is what moved you into more like sacred earth activism. Is that true? Yeah, that is exactly true. So, so I realized that as much as I had been, you know, what I thought was dedicating my life to saving the earth, um, I really didn't even have my feet in the dirt. I didn't really even know. I wasn't grounded. So I went and lived on farms for several years and um, totally disconnected from the activist world and, you know, did all the things that one does to really connect with the earth, grew my own food, got into herbs. He was eating wild mushrooms, cooking food on a fire, living under the stars, and just breathing and healing. And it really mm-hmm. took several years for me to heal. Um, and that and that is really when I started to move into, I, I still held this identi- identity as an activist, but I started to have this communication and this, um, this relationship that I was working with and with, with Earth. And um, I love this Eleanor Roosevelt quote. She says, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And I felt that that's what my life, my life became about, that I had really been cursing the darkness and focusing on the negative and, and focusing on winning, um, you know, winning over darkness. But um, I wanted to start to create light. And, and a lot of that was about healing my own body. And the irony of being an environmental activist in New York City is that you're staying up all night drinking beer and eating pizza, and you don't feel that good in your body. Um, and as, as Gandhi really practiced in his ashram, you know, I think that, that activism starts and, and nonviolence starts with the self. So I started to learn how to be nonviolent towards myself 
and started to hear the voices of the plants and started to recognize the power that was in a you know head of lettuce that I had grown myself from seed and um, I started to tap into the vital force of the earth and to feel that coursing through my body and um, that was just you know I, I wish that for everyone that we have that time in our life where we just get to feel the, the earth flowing through us um, and I think that that's such, such an important part of healing ourselves and healing our communities and healing the earth is just to feel her incredible loving presence and I think once we feel that presence in our bodies we can't forget about it even though we all forget in moments we, we continually come back to that incredible flow of energy of loving mother energy that comes up from her um, so and I have really got in touch with oh go ahead no oh, go ahead that my own echo? oh I thought that was my own echo but I think what I got in touch with um, was my identity as a biological organism and what did I what resources did I need to survive it turns out I didn't need a whole lot and I really got in touch with the simplicity of food and shelter and community and realized how much do I need to consume um, and that was I think that's such an important question and such an important part of this process of, of healing that we're going through is is returning to the simplicity of, of life as a human we've made it so complicated um, and so I started to conf really confront the culture that I was living in or the culture that we live in and just acknowledge how powerful the energies of consumerism um, and violence and hierarchy are um, how how much they sweep us up in their tornado of they're powerful and they're they're continually reinforced through media through our government and I realized that I had the option to choose not to participate um, and not in every moment but I started to recognize little moments during the day when I could make, say no I'm not going to choose that I'm not going to buy that I'm not going to do that and realizing the power of choice um, I, I love the story of uh, this man John Francis who was an activist and he was living in San Francisco in the 70s and he was biking down the road and witnessed the San Francisco oil spill where two oil tankers collided with each other and there was hundreds of thousands of gallons that spilled into the bay and in that moment he decided that he was not going to ride in cars that that was he was so upset by by witnessing that vision but that experience so he actually didn't ride in cars for 22 years but what he found as he started to embark on this project of not riding in cars or this lifestyle choice was that he was arguing with people all the time about it and the people were you know they wanted to argue and say oh you're just doing this to make us look bad so he then actually stopped speaking he decided one day that he was going to just do one day of, of not speaking as a gift to his community so that he wouldn't argue and he would just listen to what people have to say and he ended up not speaking for 17 years so and he's now he's written a book he's a powerful figure and um, but I, I just think he's really embodies this um, 
this, this notion that we can make choices. And while at the time his choice of choosing not to ride in a car or choosing not to speak may seem small, it's actually rippled and, and he's really had a huge impact through those choices. So I think thinking about choices is so, so key. Yeah, and I, I think the whole choice thing is really, really important. And, you know, we've had this discussion before about, you know, how powerful money is. And, and we, we, can, we make a choice of where to put our money. And that every time we go to buy something, it's like, okay, what, what am I supporting here by, by spending money on this? And so I think you're absolutely right that choice, choice is so important. So could you t- tell us, I mean, I'm sure people are really like saying, okay, well, that's great. You know, don't drive for 22 years and don't talk for 17. Well, that might be a little hard for some folks to do. So can you talk to us about some, some ways, different ways that we might be able to take some action and, you know, different levels to practice and what those levels might be, you know, personal, family, community, whatever they may be. And just to give folks an idea, like, what can I do here? Yeah, and this is something that I still, um, I question, I ask myself every day. So, and just to continue with my story, so I I took a real break from any kind of activism, outward activism, for, for about five years and just focused on being with the earth and making choices not to consume and making choices to grow my own food and living in that way. And then um, now I have, I, a few years ago, I, I started an activist group in my town with seven other women. Uh, we call ourselves Engage Falmouth, which is my town, Falmouth. And we organize uh, events. And so we organize everything from, you know, our, our own March for Racial Justice. We kind of tune, tune into the different global or um, national events that are happening, March for Science. Um, and then, but we also organize things like a volunteer fair where we invited um, about 25 different organizations of people that were already doing good work in the community to come kind of have a, a college fair style uh, event and so that they could recruit more people for their efforts because especially after the election a couple of years ago, many people were feeling so hopeless. So that was our response. So I, after, after not being sure whether I would ever be able to make it back into the public arena, have, have made it back, and have now stood in front of a crowd again with a bullhorn. Um, but I was so traumatized and after my experience in Kentucky that I didn't know if I would ever be able to do that. So um, I think that there's just so many. That being said, I still cared a lot. And I think to answer your question, there's just really so many different levels that we can act on and that we can take choices or make choices on. So there's the personal level, um, and just in our in our daily actions when we're by ourselves, what are we choosing to do? And and are we choosing what are we choosing to buy? What are we choosing not to buy? Are we choosing to work in our garden? Are we choosing to sing a song to the tree and offer our blessings? Are we choosing to you know harpool? Are we choosing to to help out someone in our community? I think those are so important. Um, just and I think for a lot of people, that is how they that is how they are activists, and I honor that. And I, I think that that's such an important way um, to be. And 
that was something that I had to learn how to do because I was so busy running around the world, you know, getting arrested, but I wasn't necessarily even thinking about my personal actions. I think I started kind of in a unique place and really at this point really honor and that the, my daily choices uh, and think about those so much. So um, I think choosing whatever it is accessible to you, you know, we can, we can only do what we can do. And a lot of us get wrapped up in the, the guilt of I'm not doing enough and there's, it's so overwhelming, and which is almost paralyzing. So I really like to focus on congratulating myself on the good, the, or just acknowledging the good things I have done. Not because it's necessarily enough or not, but just because focusing on the positive kind of amplifies the positive. It's, I think that's like a good way to think about raising kids almost, you know. If you just focus on the negative, you're just, always talking about that negative behavior and it's the same with ourselves personally. Yes, we're not perfect. Yes, we're all, there's more we could do but let's just focus on the good things that we are doing and, and use that language with ourselves and be nonviolent towards ourselves. And so whether that is just making personal food choices that we know are only really going to make our body healthier, that to me is, is an act of of activism because you're going to raise your own vibration, which is going to ripple out. So mm. that's a personal level. Um, and then there's your family. So, you know, impacting your family. Maybe there's actions you can take within your own household that um, make your household more sustainable. If there's things that you're interested in and learning about, you know, better ways to um, to compost or starting a compost pile or working with your kids or with your your family members to live more sustainably as a household. That's great too. And then there's the community level, um, which has which is where my activist group now, Engage Thomas, works at. And that's that is such a powerful and important level too. Just being aware of what issues are are being are going on in your town. What what land is being, you know potentially developed that is a, you know, habitat that someone else is already trying to work on and can, do you want to get involved in that effort to, to, to keep that land preserved? Is there, um, you know, all communities are full of all kinds of groups of people that would love to have more members. So just investigating, you know, what's a group that's out there already that I would like to participate with or in or, or starting your own and maybe it's, you know, you want to just organize a cleanup of your park once a year. Um, whatever it is, that's great. And then and then there is also the national conversation that is happening and the issues that are going on and that's there's ways to plug in to those larger movements too and to vote. That really matters. Um, and so I think some of us are just drawn to working in different levels and we can just honor that. Um, I love this quote um, by Clarissa Pinkola at SDS. She says, ours is not the task of, of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small, calm thing that one soul can do to help another soul to assist some portion of this poor, suffering world will help immensely. 
It is not given to us to know which acts, which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip toward an enduring good. What is needed for a dramatic change is an accumulation of acts, adding, adding to, adding more, continuing. We know that it is, does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, but only a small determined group who will not give up during the first, second, or hundredth gale. So I love, I love what she says there. Wow, that's that's really potent and powerful because I, I feel like I've kind of fallen into this this place uh, sometimes of feeling like just exactly what you're describing of like, oh my gosh, I'm just not doing enough. What what more can I do? What more can I do? And um, in a way, I I feel like you know helping to found the organization of nature evolutionaries was part of that. It's like oh, I have to do more. I have to do more. And um, so I I love this whole idea of just. You know, you just take the next, you just put, take another step. You take one more step that you can, whatever you can today to, 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 to make a change. So I really love that. Thanks for that reminder. Yeah, and I, I do really think there's this aspect of, I think guilt really plays into this and is really paralyzing. And, mm-hmm. you know, for, in my, for myself and for all people, I wish that we could acknowledge that, you know, we didn't, we're participating, um, but the problem didn't start with our birth. <laughs> and we, I believe that we come here for a reason, and we come here with a gift to share. And sometimes our gift, um, you know, of bringing more light and our, our unique gift gets so, we, we kind of can't express it because we get so overwhelmed by the, the scale of the problems and, you know, how much we're contributing. And... Um, it's an interesting balance, I think, because uh, I think a lot of people then tune out and they're just like, oh, it's so big, I'm just going to you know, watch television and drive around. Um, and then some of us are like, oh, it's so big, I, I can't even breathe, but what can I do? But um, I, you know, I, we can't really know. She says, um, what does she say? It is not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip towards an enduring good. We can't know. And, um, and, and I think also we can't necessarily be attached to the outcome. You know, there's, I, I studied a lot of Buddhism, and, um, and so they have this concept of non-attachment, um, and, and also that attachment and desire leads to all suffering. And so that's something that I really work on deeply in my own life. It's just, first of all, being connected to the earth every day and working with her energy and working with my plant allies and just putting in my practice, doing my practice, putting in my work, growing my food. I can't, it's not always perfect. Sometimes I can't harvest everything before the frost, which just happens, but um but just continuing to go forward and then just also, you know, how can we, it's such a mystery. It's such a mystery. And um, we did talk about this, Pam, at our last plant initiation with maple, but, you know, what if, what if this, this journey that we're on with the earth, like she has her own consciousness. This is her evolution. This is her trauma. This is her wound that she needs to experience just in the way that we come here 
can come into a body and need to experience our traumas and we learn from them and we heal from them and they really become our source of power. So um, I, I know that that's not an easy thing to do, but practicing non-attachment. And then there's also this Buddhist concept of um, skillful action, which I really like to think about a lot. Um, and so so in Buddhism they say an un, unskillful actions are those that create suffering for yourself and others. And skillful actions are helpful, reduce harm, or promote a peace of mind. And so just evaluating my actions is this a skillful action? Because sometimes the the best thing to do is to not participate or is to be still. And that's really hard for us as a culture because we, we, we drive ourselves so hard and it's so much about action. Sometimes the most skillful action is non-action, is to sit. But then sometimes there is an action that is needs to be taken. And is it, you know, is it creating, um, is it helpful reducing harm and promoting peace of mind? Is it a healing action? And that's, I think, a good way to, to a good question to ask ourselves as we live our days. Um, so would then, you say that, I'm sorry, but would you say that, you know, skillful action, I, I get the idea. Um, would Would you say that we could extend that to like conscious action, like being really conscious of every single thing that you do and how it affects yourself and others and the earth? Are we, yeah. is, that, is that an extended version of skillful action or do you think it's yeah. like, kind of like the same thing? Yeah, I think that's, I think that that's really, I think that's really what it is. That's what we're talking about. Okay. And yeah, and because we were, you know, we just were at, the Organization of Nature Evolutionaries just brought a group to Domenher in Italy, and I would say that I am so impressed by what they do because they're, they're doing exactly this, what you're describing. They're doing skillful action. Every single action they take is, is conscious. It's, it's, there's nothing that's haphazard or like, oh, whatever, oh, let's just do that, whatever. There's none of that. And I just, and you see the power of it. You can, you can see it. I, I mean, it's right displayed in front of you. So I think this whole idea is super important. Yeah, and when we are practicing skillful action, we're connected to the, we're connected. We're connected to something larger than ourselves. We, and we're, we feel that, and we, that's, I think, when we get in flow and um, when, when things start to happen is when we're practicing that skillful action. And I think, and as you know and have taught me, Pam, and so many others, just having, having practices that keep us connected and keep us remembering that we are biological organisms, you know, living in the ecosystem of the earth, um, and what does that mean, and how do we, and, and that we're connected to all things, and all plants, and all trees, and the waters, and the fire, and, and the stars, that, that then they're going to inform us, and there's so much support, and so much communication that we can receive when we just simply make very small amounts of time in our day to connect, and I think part of one's work in having this theme of sacred activism is to say, um, let's 
ground our actions and our activism in this communication. So let's really be collaborators. Let's listen to the earth and her, all of her beings, their words or their desires and their needs and then act accordingly. And we take ourselves out of the center. As humans, we're so used to having all of the answers and letting our analytical minds march forward. And when we move into that place of receptivity and that place of listening and receiving instructions, it's such a relief not to have to be in charge. <laughs> and it's such a relief to be able to just fit into the flow and to let our actions happen from this deep place of, of love, you know. Um, love, you know, ahimsa, Gandhi's ahimsa, love in action. And um, Cornell West has this great quote. He says, um, justice is what love looks like in public. <laughs> justice is what love looks like in public. So, um, gosh, I think that's so important. That's great. I love that. I love that quote. Yeah. 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 Um, so are you, um, are you ready to take some questions at this point? If we have any questions, would, are you ready to do sure. that? Or, okay. Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone would like to ask Lauren a question or have a comment, um, you need to press star five on your phone and your little hand will go up on my computer screen and I'll know that you want to speak and I'll unmute you so that everybody can hear you. So please, if you have any questions or even comments or thoughts about this um, very, very important topic that we're discussing today, um, please, please um, raise your hand. Put it in question and answer mode. <laughs> I've made that mistake before. I need to put it in question. Oh, you I need just, to. Um, yeah. Oh, I, need I need to go to that little button. The little button. <laughs> go to the. Okay. Um, it says presentation mode, and then go to question and answer mode. Oh really? Oh God, I didn't yeah. know I had to do that. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to unmute you. I think this must be Heather. Is this Heather? Is that who we're, uh, let's see, hang on. Uh, okay, Heather, can you hear me? Is that you? Hello? 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 Hi, hi can we can hear, hear you. you. Yeah. Is that you, Heather? It is. Oh, hi, uh, how I are you? I'm going halfway through because I, yeah, so uh, it's just really great. Um, well, it's great to connect with you all. And it's really great to hear your story or like the half that I've heard, Lauren. Like I used to be a really intense activist and I got burned out. And so I can relate with that. And I just wanted to relate with the guilt piece um, that, yeah, I've totally, I think for a long time been feeling guilty. And I think you're inspiring me today in terms of thinking about different ways that I could um, live my activism because I can't do the getting arrested thing anymore. So, so yeah, I just want to yeah. say thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for calling, and um, it's good to hear your voice. And, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think burnout is such a real problem in the activist community, and um, I, I now work a little bit with some people on that, on providing services at training camps and at activist events where, where people's spirits are considered. And I think that that's, that is such a, you're almost meant to, you're almost supposed to sacrifice yourself. There's a mentality of mm -hmm. self-sacrifice 
Um, and when I was injured, I, I really was abandoned, I felt at the time, by my community. No one really called me to say, how are you doing? Are you healing? So um, I think always our own personal health, as we've been talking about this whole time, and our own is so vital. And like I said, taking care of ourselves is an act, is a work of act, is, is an activist act. That's a vibration that we're creating that's rippling. So and I know you're doing that. I know you. Mm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thanks, Heather, for, for um, joining us and, and speaking up. Let's see. Does anybody else have um, a question or a comment for, for Lauren? If so, just press star 5, and I will be able to see your hand and, um, and unmute your phone so you can speak or ask or whatever. While we're waiting, you know, Lauren, one thing that, um, you know, that I struggle with, and, it, it, you know, it's like, ugh, I think it's the grief uh, that comes sometimes when I, you know, I hear these incredible stories of Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Of course, you know, we know, we know quite a bit of history there. And then I go into this deep grief place because, you know, their lives were ended with violence. And here they, 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 you know, they dedicated their lives to nonviolence and their lives were taken in violence. And it's just kind of like, oh, that grief of that, the grief of, yeah, it just sometimes really gets me. And so I don't know if you have anything to say about grief, but <laughs> it's a, it's a yeah, big one. Well, it, it's been it's the season of grief. We're in the, in the fall, which is the metal element, which is grief. But I think, yeah, I don't know, I, I still go back to, yes, because grief is real and grief needs to be expressed and grief needs to be felt and grief is, can get locked in the body and create paralysis. Um, like it's, it gets stuck in the lungs, really. Um, but I think I just go back to that idea of, of non-attachment and not knowing. We don't know why we're here. Well, we can walk our path, but there's just such a great mystery to it all. and. Um, yeah, you know, you always talk about Martine Prechtel's quote about planting seeds for a time beyond our own, and I think that that's so important here, that we don't know what seeds we're planting, and even with a death, even with a violent death, what seed did that plant, you know, how did MLK's death ripple out and change the world, and I don't know, but grief is real, and grief, it's much better off acknowledged than repressed in my experience. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. And, um, you know, I sometimes I wonder, like, what what would have been different if those two men both uh, did not did not die the violent deaths that they did? Like, how would it have been different? You know, and, and we'll never know, of course. But um, But I hear what you're saying about, you know, that grief place is, becomes like compost where you plant you plant seeds and and from that something beautiful grows so and, and yeah. both of those men beauty has grown out of of their work in the world so so yeah yeah and so many others you know activists are still being um killed as we speak down in south america for fighting oil companies and um it's ongoing it's an ongoing struggle and um i think you know, there's another great Clarissa Pinkola Estes quote. She says, um, when a great ship is in a harbor and moored, it is safe. There can be no doubt. 
but that is not what great ships are built for. And I love that Mm -hmm. because I think that uh, it takes a lot of courage to be an activist. It takes a lot of courage to live our lives as an activist. And, you know, as, as MLK says, the first principle of nonviolence is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. Mm-hmm. So we really have to tap into that courage and that hope, which I think both kind of live in that solar plexus area um, and in the heart and to let call in those energies. And my experience of working with the plants and with the earth energy is that if we need hope, if we're calling for hope, she will give it to us and that there is this vibration of hope um, that we can that we can cultivate and nourish and build and flame the flame the fire or fan the flame of within ourselves during this time because it's a very very challenging time that we're living in and speaking of being courageous you know it's also when we talk about this that the source of our activism is equally as important as the action itself and so so when we talk about the source of it and we're we're now we're now in in our work with the earth and, and our sacred earth activism and the source is we're going to the we're going to nature we're going to the plants we're going to the trees we're going to the water and we're being informed by by this source now that takes courage too and to actually speak up about it and and so this is this is an area that is kind of you know dear to my heart is that I have felt for a while now that this is kind of one of the pieces that's missing in the environmental movement is that, and you've described it, you've described what in your own journey of, of like how it just didn't work for you to, to continue in that, in that mode. And that, so, so, so now to have the courage to be able to say, yes, I'm, I'm going to go straight to the source and find out what the source, you know, has to say about how to take action now, how to move forward. And that also takes courage. So. Yeah, it does. And I think when we stand together and when we stand together with the earth, you know, in groups, because I think about that very first moment I described of being at the Apple store in New York City with Greenpeace where they shine the green light and the power that I felt in that group of 100 people that had gathered and how much that impacted me and led me on a five-year journey to put myself out there. But at the root of that was the we're going to win this campaign energy, um, what happens when we gather in that way and vision the future, because that's what that event was about, visioning Apple as green, but when we are doing it from that deep place of love and connection and um, communi- communication and communion and community, I think that that is, that's what I'm working on right now in my current work with my community is being able to bring that to the town green where we have our events in the bullhorn and to yeah. call on call on the earth energy. So that's what I think is next mm. is that deep connection and the community gathering and, and being with each other. And that's where we get our courage and we build power with yeah. each other. I agree. It's it's really about coming together in community, which is which, you know, it's what we've done with the organization of nature evolutionaries is we're building a community of of people, you know, wanting to to move forward in this way. So I just want to thank you so much for taking time today. I know you have a busy life and lots going on for everybody. And um, so I just really want to thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us today about all this. It's so important. And, you know, your your stories are inspiring. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that people can go forward from this and, um, you yeah, know, and feel inspired about 
about about the actions that they can take. So thank you so much, Lauren, for this today. Thank you for letting me speak. Oh, of course, of course. So I just want to thank everybody, all the callers who called in today to listen and uh, just for everybody to know that you can, if you missed a piece of it or whatever, you can go to our website, www.natureevolutionaries.com, and this this has been recorded, so you can listen to it again, or you can tell your friends who might have missed it that it is has been recorded, and they can always go to our website and, and listen again. And the other thing I just want to mention is we just launched, maybe some of you saw this on Facebook or on our website, that we just launched our end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. You know, it does take money to, to do uh, free teleseminars and to uh, do to do newsletters and to maintain a website and to organize journeys to other nature evolutionaries and to create a sacred earth activism guide and to create an online course. All of it takes time, energy, resources. And so we would really, really, really appreciate any support you might be able to give to one. And please tell your friends, spread the word. We, we love the idea of, you know, 20 bucks a month, just to, every month we see, know that that's coming in and it's not that much out of your pocket each month but it really helps us so please consider uh, a donation to one and you can go to our website and under the support uh, drop down box you can go to making a donation so thank you so much for that and our next teleseminar coming up in December is on December 16th, and um, this will be with Patrick McManaway, and he's going to talk to us about land whispering. He's a geomancer and a person who works very closely with the earth and in very practical ways with farmers and land stewards and others, and he's going to talk to us about how, you know, some of this that we've been talking about today, about how do you, uh, how can you be informed by the land, uh, how to take action. And so we're going to get some real good tidbits from him. So thank you all so much for joining us today. And we'll look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you again. Have a great afternoon.